Time for short play. Alex Andy Stanley, pastor of the mega church North Point Community Church, announced that North Point has suspended in-person worship gatherings until 2021. You know, Nick, that's probably best. You know, once the aliens show up, the church is going to need a few months to figure out how to include our extraterrestrial truth seekers in our congreg- in our gathering space. So uh, do we have separate but equal pews? I don't know. I mean, we, we aren't sure how slimy these guys are going to be. You don't want to get too close. So there's a lot of logistics to work out. And are we going to make the aliens wear masks? So lots of things to figure out. I think Stanley made the right move. Well, they're the lizard overlords. I guess they would know best. Um, <laughs> this is Sword Play. We are your hosts. I am Nick Perez, preaching minister for the Davis Park Church of Christ in Modesto, California. I'm Alex Flood. I'm an evangelist for the Lake Phelan Church of Christ in St. Paul, Minnesota. On this episode of Sword Play, Esther chapters 1 through 5. That's right. We're going to go through the book of Esther in three parts. 1 through 5 today, 6 through 10 next week, and then a special third episode on Greek Esther. So if we're going to talk about the book of Esther, like any book, we need to start out with background information. So Nick, the first question is, when was the book of Esther written, and what kind of manuscript evidence are we working with? So the earliest date for the writing of a portion of the book of Esther Assuming, by the way, historicity of the events, and we'll talk about that as we go along. But the earliest date would be the seventh year of Ahasuerus's reign when Mordecai's actions in saving the king's life were recorded in the book of Chronicles in the presence of the king, and that's according to 2 verse 23. The seventh year of Ahasuerus's reign would, be, uh, would have been approximately 479 B.C., And then five years later, would be approximately 473 B.C., that's when we have the main events of the book. And after everything's been said and done, Mordecai records these things and sends out letters to all the Jews concerning Purim in chapter 9 and verse 20. So if Mordecai wrote what is for us, the book of Esther, Uh, Both the official document of 479 B.C. and the letter or letters five years later that were sent out, that could be the early textual records for what became the Old Testament document, Esther. Uh, So that's the earliest edge, way back in the 5th century B.C. The edge for uh, the latest possible date for the book, uh, when it could have been written, is sometime during the early part of the 2nd century B.C., when uh, in Second Maccabees uh, chapter 15 and verse 36, the uh, Jewish people of that day, uh, they honor Mordecai's day, the day of Mordecai, which is a reference to Purim. And that would have been approximately 160 B.C. So 5th century to 2nd century B.C. are kind of the edges for uh, the, when the book could have been written. Uh, what, what did you find, Alex? Yeah, I think uh, what you found was right. If we were to go with the Septuagint or Josephus and his antiquities, then the Ahasuerus of Esther is actually Persian king Artaxerxes I. Artaxerxes, uh, La, uh, what's his other name? Longjimanus, long-handed one. Well, anyway, that 
ruler reigned from 465 to 425 BC. So that would put the earliest date of writing to 453 BC with the with the latest date by 160 BC, as you mentioned, uh, because of the reference in 2 Maccabees. So the earliest manuscript we have of Esther in Hebrew comes from Codex Leningradensis. Now, Leningradensis, that's the codex that we use for most English translations of the Old Testament today. And that manuscript, that codex, it goes back to 1000 AD, 1000 AD. So that's why the Dead Sea Scrolls are so important is because all of a sudden we had Hebrew manuscripts from like 1 to 200 BC. So you got a 1200 year update on our manuscripts with the Dead Sea Scrolls. But with Esther, uh, not in the Dead Sea Scrolls, we'll talk about that in a minute. The earliest version of the story that I think exists anywhere is in the Greek, and it's through the Septuagint and also through Josephus. So that would date to 1st century BC and 1st uh, century AD, respectively. It should be noted, though, that I think if Esther were treated with the same level of suspicion as Tobit and Judith, then we would be having a very different conversation right now about dating. Esther's canonicity was not widely accepted in Jewish or Christian circles for quite some time. It took a little while. And we'll discuss that later as well, canonicity. But because of its canonical status today, we automatically tend to opt for an authentic historical reading, an early dating viewpoint. So on the other hand, if we had labeled Esther as apocryphal, for the same reasons as other apocryphal works like uh, historical inaccuracies, uh, promotion of a non-biblical feast, uh, not being quoted in the New Testament, absent from early lists of uh, books that are canon. If for those reasons we had listed Esther as apocryphal, then we would be touting Esther as a Jewish historical fiction, written probably during Hellenistic times as a parable for how Jews should conduct themselves through Hellenization, that is the uh, turning everything into Greek, and how do dispersed Jews handle that. So I'm just saying, that's the way we would approach it if we did not have the same view of canonical status towards Esther as the church does today. So, Dead Sea Scrolls. This is mm-hmm. interesting, Nick. Why is Esther absent from the Dead Sea Scrolls? Well, there are uh, at least two options for uh, the absence. Uh, one, uh, the sect at Qumran had manuscripts of Esther, but those copies of uh, Esther have been lost over time due to text corruption. Uh, another option is that the Qumran sectarians intentionally rejected the book. They were kind of proto-Marcionites, I guess, in that regard, but uh, through that view. Um, the argument in favor of the presence of Esther at Qumran is circumstantial at best. Uh, Esther, it's a small book. It could easily have disintegrated over time, especially when we consider that uh, larger books like uh, Nehemiah, First Chronicles, also do not have textual representation at Qumran. In fact, of the manuscript that we have of what would have been First and Second Chronicles, a single book in the Hebrew, only four verses survive from Second Chronicles. 
So if a manuscript like First and Second Chronicles, 65 chapters in our English Bibles, if that kind of manuscript can succumb to the ravages of time to such a degree that only two fragments containing four verses total remain, it is easy to see how a much smaller book, 10 chapters in our English, could have just disintegrated over time. On the other hand, it may be that the uh, sect at Qumran were proto-Marcionites uh, in their handling of Scripture. They just outright rejected Esther. By the way, Marcion's the guy who, in the early church, said, uh, no, I don't want the Old Testament. All that matters is Paul's documents, and I'll give you some Luke as well, uh, and, and basically rejected everything else uh, in Scripture. Uh, Paul and just Luke, that was it for Marcion. Uh, so... Qumran could have done that and said, no, um, we're, we're not going to accept Esther. Uh, and there's evidence to suggest that they did not observe Purim. Uh, perhaps they considered it too innovated, uh, innovative for their extremely conservative sect. Uh, however, the Essenes, and they are typically considered the, the default group that is associated with Qumran, uh, they celebrated other festivals that... We're not in Torah. Uh, observance of the Feast of Weeks or Pentecost, well, that is in Torah. Uh, they celebrate it three times annually, uh, as seen in the Temple Scroll. So uh, it's possible that uh, um, uh, when it comes to these ho religious holidays, there's another way of looking at this. Uh, in fact, the way they counted the calendar, if I remember this right, um, Purim would have always fallen on a Sabbath for them. But uh, in addition to this, the Qumran sectarians, they were really big fans of God, and the absence of any mention of God from a Hebrew text like Esther uh, probably would have given them pause. And um, I mean, King of Persia, he's mentioned 190 times in 167 verses, but God isn't mentioned once? Well, it's doesn't pass a smell test for the Qumran sect, perhaps, and so they said, well, we're just not going to pay much attention to Esther. Um, that's a possibility as well. So a couple of different ways of looking at, at the uh, absence of Esther from the Dead Sea Scrolls uh, sectarian community. Uh, what about you, Alex? What do you think? Well, as far as what's missing in the Dead Sea Scrolls from the Old Testament canon, as of 2012, a fragment of Nehemiah has been found uh, I didn't know that. I had to look it up. It seems that, uh, as you said, First and Second Chronicles, um, that was one scroll, and you do have some verses from Second Chronicles uh, preserved there. So that uh, kind of represents both First and Second Chronicles, even though it's not very, very much uh, represented through the fragments. Um, also, some of the story in Chronicles is represented through uh, portions in the scroll of Samuel, and so the only truly missing book of the Old Testament in the Dead Sea Scrolls is Esther. And uh, it's interesting, uh, I don't think the book of Ruth is uh, known for mentioning the name of God, um, but I believe Ruth was in the Dead Sea Scrolls. So this gives favor to the idea that the Dead Sea community outright rejected Esther. And you have to remember, the Qumran sect, they saw themselves as the true and last pure people of Yahweh. I mean, they didn't even go to Jerusalem at the temple because the whole priesthood was corrupted in their view. So they replicated the priesthood and the liturgical ceremonies as best they could. 
out by the Dead Sea. But uh, we have copies of their liturgical calendar, and Purim was not on that liturgical calendar. So the absence of that uh, festival, I think, speaks louder than the multiplying of other approved festivals, like having multiple harvest feasts, Feast of Weeks three times. Um, It seems to me that the Qumran community rejected Esther because they just didn't like it. And so they attributed no sacred status to it. In fact, they may have even hated it because there was quite a few documents that maybe weren't sacred that they still found at the Dead Sea Scrolls. So I think it's likely, as we'll discuss in our episode on Greek Esther, that perhaps in the original story, though, maybe God was mentioned and that the original story is preserved in Greek and later it got edited out of the Masoretic text. Who knows why, nor can we prove why, uh, without some sort of miraculous finding of earlier Hebrew Esther manuscripts. I mean, again, Hebrew manuscript, we're working with uh, Leningradensis, which is 1000 AD. So it's unlikely to happen, but maybe we'll find something you'll never know. I will say that in uh, Anchor Yale, Anchor Yale Bible Dictionary, hat tip there, gives a list of possible reasons for early Jewish and Christian rejection of the book of Esther. Uh, number one, it has some moral deficiencies. Number two, it has questionable content. Number three, uh, it has there was possibly a pagan origin to the festival of Purim, and so Esther is kind of the glazing over of that pagan origin by replacing it with a different origin story. Number four, uh, there is a lack of historicity when looking at a few things within the story of Esther. So that brings us to what is Purim, Nick? All right, hold on. Not so fast, my <laughs> friend. <laughs> so you mentioned the uh, the uh, Nehemiah fragment from 2012. Uh, I believe it was a Norwegian scholar who, uh, with his colleague, and her name was actually Esther, if I remember right. His colleague, and her name was actually Esther, if I remember right. She's biased. They, uh, yeah, this newly discovered <laughs> fragment of Nehemiah, which contains Nehemiah 2, verses 13 through 16. And it was published in 2016 by uh, Brill, which is the publication of the, of the uh, Museum of the Bible, uh, along with a dozen other uh, fragments, uh, fragments from all over the Old Testament, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, uh, Ezekiel, Jonah, etc., and, and Nehemiah was one of those fragments that was published in 2016. Even when the, that publication came out, though, there, were still, there was still division among the scholars about the authenticity of these fragments. Um, some of them said, yeah, they were authentic, but there were others who said, well, no, not so fast. They didn't outright come out and say, well, they're not truly authentic, but there was disagreement. Fast so forward to this year. Earlier this year, the uh, the... Uh, publication Brill, they issued a retraction of their book. It was a 236-page book on these uh, fragments, Dead Sea Scroll fragments in the museum collection. And that was because upon closer investigation, after a second round of scientific study of those fragments, it was concluded that they were modern forgeries uh, and specifically regarding the Nehemiah fragment, uh, the, uh, one of the uh, scholars said there were problematic ink traces with the Nehemiah fragment. So given all that, it seems as though Nehemiah would still be MIA 
from the Dead Sea Scrolls. Uh, so, um, possibly, I guess the, possibly. The, right. I guess there's still another way of, of looking at it. But given that, I am disinclined to see that Nehemiah <laughs> fragment as uh, authentic to the Dead Sea Scroll. Disinclined to acquiesce to your requests. There it is. Once every season. <clears throat> we be but humble pirates. <laughs> so there's okay. your update. All right. Well, that's good. That's a good update, Nick. I appreciate that. Your diligent research, you. Well, <laughs> what did you find for the Festival of Purim? What is that? Uh, so, yeah, Purim, this is a, a festival celebrating the deliverance of the Jews from annihilation at the hands of the enemy of the Jews, Haman the Agagite, and it finds its origin here in the book of Esther. What did you find about Purim? Well, the name Purim is a Hebraized form of the Babylonian word Peru, which means lot or fate. And that's probably a reference to what Haman is doing in Esther chapter 3, verse 7. That is, he's casting lots to figure out when is the right time to kill all of the Jews. And so that could be the, the origin for the name Purim, meaning lot or fate, and how God rescues them from that lot or fate. Now, most scholars, they do spend quite a bit of time trying to find the pagan holiday, which would be the predecessor to Purim. And so far, no certain conclusions can be made. The interesting note, though, is that many of the names in the book of Esther, they're very similar to many names of other deities, which leads some scholars to believe that Esther was based off of an earlier story template that spoke of the rise of Marduk and Ishtar, and the Jews turned it into the rise of Mordecai and Esther. Marduk, Mordecai, Ishtar, Esther. So very similar, and there's a, other similar names in there, like with Haman and uh, a few others. So that's Purim. We don't know if there's a predecessor pagan form, or if really this is a unique Jewish holiday that begins with God's deliverance of Jewish people from evil Haman, the Agagite. So, that brings us to our next question, Nick. Why was the book of Esther written, and who was the audience? So, I, uh, it seems like there's a twofold purpose to the book of Esther. And uh, one would be to encourage the returned exiles concerning the providential care of God, that even uh, behind the scenes and seemingly anonymously, God is preserving his people. And uh, still got, as God's people, you still have your role to play. You still got to do your thing. If you're not active, well, God's not going to do the work for you. But he's still there. He's still there behind the scenes. So that's one uh, potential purpose. Another could be an apologetic for the festival of uh, Purim. And uh, kind of a defense for why they have it. This is where it comes from. And so Esther kind of answers the question, is God with the diaspora? And the answer that comes back is, come hell or high water or Haman, God will be faithful even when we haven't been faithful historically. So a couple purposes I see there. What do you think, Alex? Well, obviously, one's take on the date and the authorship will guide conclusions about the purpose and audience. And so I think what you gave seem, seems like the best reason for uh, an Esther written around the 4th, 5th century BC. Uh, 
Now, if I were inclined to see Esther as a piece of Second Temple literature written in Hellenistic times, then I would say the book was written to give an apologetic defense for how conforming to the Gentile culture around them could be beneficial to the Jews, and that such conformity may even be God's providential hand for rescuing and benefiting his people. The quote, and who knows whether you have not attained royalty for such a time as this. So such a liberal approach then to dealing with Hellenization in the guise of a story about Persia, that would be a big motivation, I think, for rejection by early Jews, especially those at Qumran. Not all Jews, but more conservative Jews. This story would be the opposite of Tobit and the opposite of Judith. Those stories show how through great lengths a Jew must maintain their Jewishness and whatever the cost, God will deliver and he will repay and it will work out in the end, but you have to stand your ground. And so with Esther, it's kind of the opposite. It's we have more flexibility, more leeway here. We don't even need to tell people necessarily that we're Jewish. So that might be the difference between reception of Esther among early Jews and reception of Tobit and Judith among early Jews, especially when looking at the Dead Sea Scrolls. Now, Nick, when looking at the story of Esther, there are supposedly some historical difficulties. Why don't you talk to us about that? Yeah, so the the events recorded in Esther uh, take place during the reign of Ahasuerus, or Xerxes. It's easier to say, so I'm going to go with that from now on, I think. Um, This is the Xerxes from uh, the movie 300, right? Xerxes the Great? I'm not sure. uh, Battles uh, Leonidas and his 300 Spartans? Yeah, I don't know if that's the same guy. I guess, I don't know. Anyway... No, anyway. I can't speak to that. I just <laughs> I think it is, but it, go ahead. Uh so he this Xerxes uh he rules Persia from 486 to 465 BC. And the historical issues concerning Esther arise because there was a Greek historian named Herodotus who is known as the father of history. And he wrote his histories uh, just about contemporary with uh, Xerxes, and they contain details about him, which are uh, and his kingdom, which are difficult to sync with the record that we have in Esther. And there, there's a couple ways of looking at Herodotus, right? One is historians, both ancient and contemporary, they question the reliability of Herodotus, and that he's. He's not as good a historian. He kind of depends on hearsay and the rumor mills and all that. On the other hand, there are others who've sought to answer the difficulties that are associated with squaring Esther with Herodotus. One notable difference between the book of Esther and Herodotus is the identity of Xerxes' wife. In the Bible, it is Vashti and then Esther. Right. In Herodotus, Xerxes' wife is... Amistress. Right. Explanations of this difficulty include equating Esther with Amistress, although it's difficult to do because the atrocities that are attributed to uh, Amistress in Herodotus's histories 
are hard to reconcile with Esther. Uh, and, and by the way, these include things like the mutilation of a woman. I'm not sure that the biblical Esther would be involved in something like that. But Others equate Amistris with Vashti. Others just say, well, Xerxes, uh, he, he was a very passionate fellow, probably a polygamist. He had more than one wife. As we'll talk about when we get into the book of Esther, this is a bad dude, unstable in a lot of ways, and just outright um, of the flesh, all right? Uh, he did have a harem, after all. So, you yeah. know, there's, there, there are different ways of explaining this. Right. Um, others question the 180-day feast that begins the book, right. verses 3 and 4 of chapter 1. Uh, such a lengthy feast. That's absurd. This is an improbable element in the story, right? However, this 180-day right? However, this 180-day period is there were two feasts that were actually separated by the 180-day wealth demonstration, uh, or there were two feasts after the 180 days. Eh, eh, those are out there. I just mentioned them because of that. On the other hand, it's clever. Yeah, assuming partial reliability of Herodotus, Xerxes' decadence and his weak moral character uh, is actually. The beginning of the end for the Persian Empire. He loved opulence. He loved luxury. And so, you know, a half-year feast, it's not outside the realm of possibility for such a decadent leader as Xerxes. So those are just some of the historical difficulties that arise. And I, all I want to say is, when it comes to these historical difficulties, there are ways of squaring them. Um, some more clever than others, but um, and, and I think this is true, by the way, for all Bible difficulties, right? People talk about, ah, the Bible's full of contradictions. Well, it's actually, there are difficulties, sure, but contradictions, there are ways of working through these and explaining them. And uh, there's, a, there's a couple of examples for you from the book of Esther. Uh, Alex, what did you find? Well, a lot of those historical issues with Xerxes and Herodotus' account, um, those are solved by favoring the Septuagint and Josephus, because Septuagint and Josephus, they name Ahasuerus as Artaxerxes I, Artaxerxes Longimanus, as the Persian king of Esther. And so that would fix a lot of the, the different lineups there, but it doesn't fix everything. There's still tricky parts, like it's hard to pinpoint which one of his spouses correspond to Vashti and then later Esther. You know, neither one of these names, Vashti or Esther, uh, neither one of those show up in the historical record, and there's no strong correlation between uh, who those characters are as we know them in Esther and who they might actually be in Herodotus's record or some other historical record. We don't have that correlation, so we still can't pinpoint them. We can't find them. Uh, doesn't mean they didn't exist or that it's not true. It's just it's a difficulty. Now, the events recorded in Esther, I agree with you, they're not unbelievable, um, but we still lack extra-biblical evidence that they happened in history. Uh, we don't always have to have that, but it is nice to have that sometimes. However, that particular problem about the historical problems, um, that problem goes away if we are to view this as a Holy Spirit-inspired work of fiction, like a divine parable created to instruct God's people at a specific time for a specific purpose. 
And we talked about that in our Judith podcast, I believe. Uh, it's either that or Tobit. I can't remember, but I think it was, it was Judith. Yeah, Judith. Yeah, when we talked about how you, it is possible to have a Holy Spirit-inspired work of fiction. And there are going to be flags that are purposely put into the story to make the reader know that this is not being presented as a true historical account, but rather as a story, a fiction story. And so are those flags within the book of Esther? They may be. So another possibility for you. Now, we often get confused then when we say, well, if it's fiction, it can't be canonical. Well, that's not necessarily true. It could be. But why is Esther canonical? What makes something canonical? Nick, why don't you talk to us for that? Yeah. By the way, just to go back to something we you mentioned about the Xerxes yeah, that that would be the same guy at, at Thermopylae. Um, I just this looked it up. Is Sparta? That's right. Research on the fly here. Uh, for some reason, I thought and it came later. That's how Haman but... really died. Haman was kicked into the bottomless pit in Sparta. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> Canon. All right. Okay. Uh, so, you, people need to realize we have fiction in our Bible, right? Parables. They are made up. Uh, Jesus's parables. He he made them up on the fly, right? Um, so, Holy Spirit inspired fiction is not, you know, something that is novel and we just came up with on off the top of our head. We find it in Scripture. Okay. Um, however, I'm one who leans toward the historical position for Esther that it is his, uh, historically reliable. And so, when it comes to canon, uh, it's it's an interesting question, right? So, if we go back to Martin Luther. Always good to start with a 16th century reformer with the question of canonistic. <laughs> he, he hated Esther. He said, I wish it had never been written, along with like Second Maccabees. Right. So that tells you a bit about his canon. But anyway, um, the early church writers, they kind of had a, a nip and tuck, touch and go relationship with Esther. Generally speaking, the Western church, uh, for the most part, accepted Esther as canonical, whereas the Eastern church, by and large, did not. Now, you can find exceptions to the rule in both of those, but <clears throat> uh, that's that's kind of how it breaks down, generally speaking. Right. Now, we'll discuss Greek Esther, um, but the— It's better. The Septuagint translation, <laughs> with all its additions, 108 additional verses, at least demonstrates that the text of Esther was received by some Jews as early as early 2nd century B.C., um, uh, Rejection of the canonicity of Esther typically relies upon uh, three reasons, as summarized by Moore. And um, I don't have the reference. I think that's the New American Commentary. Is it Moore? Anyway, uh, absence of religious elements. So, you know, no mention of God. Questions regarding historicity. And we dealt with some of those. And origins of Purim as a holiday. Um, and, you know, the, the pagan roots of all that. So that's why some people have rejected it uh, as canon. So why is Esther canonical then? Why is it in our Bibles? Well, because although God's name, any reference to God is absent, God's fingerprints are all over the story. Um, It's true that there's been debate about the canonicity of of Esther. Uh, Nevertheless, both Jews and Christians have considered it as canon. And uh, and it seems that seems to go back even 
to the era before Christ. Uh, I was uh, reminded of um, the prologue to Ecclesiasticus, which is another apocryphal document, right? It mentions what law, prophets, and the rest of the books. Um, doesn't specifically tell you what books are included in that that uh, triplicate form, but that it assumes a canon. We're talking second uh, century BC for Ecclesiasticus. Uh, Jesus, even in the first century, talks about uh, law, prophets, and psalms. Talks about scripture. So there was a, there was a, a settled understanding that there are there is scripture and there is this canon and you can even get the the threefold division but esther canon alex what do you think well first i'll I'll give a hat tip to anchor yale bible dictionary i found a lot of good stuff in there a lot of the information i provide here in the introduction but second this question goes to show you especially when we're looking at esther that the idea of canonization, it was not an overnight ordeal, right? It wasn't some quick vote by a council, and now we're all done. Here's your Bible. In fact, even councils that did talk about what is canon, essentially, they may not have used that word, but what is the standard, the highest standard, what belongs to this group, and what doesn't. Ah, For example, the Council of Jamnia in AD 90, that's where the Jews basically canonized their Hebrew Bible, right? So this is post-church, post-New Testament. Well, we don't have any evidence of Esther making it into the cut of the Jamnia canon. Uh, The church itself officially accepted Esther by the time you get to the Council of Hippo, which again was dealing with canon, and that was in AD 393, right? So 300 years after Jamnia. So it wasn't an overnight ordeal where you have this unanimous consensus that Esther is canon, or Esther is at the same level as these other uh, books that we have together with our manuscripts that we call scripture. So that's, that's one thought. And my last thought is that I think Esther should be considered along the same vein as Judith. Now, you have to remember, I have a high view of Judith. I have a high view of the apocryphal books. I have a high view of most everything in the Septuagint. So when I say you should consider Esther along the same vein as Judith, that to me, that's not a demotion of Esther. Uh, I'm thinking of early church writer Clement of Rome, right? Probably the earliest church writer outside of the New Testament writers. Clement of Rome, he's called an apostolic father. He mentions both Judith and Esther as godly women. And it's interesting how that early writer groups those two ladies together. Now, he didn't say whether he considers them like uh, characters from a fiction story that should be considered as a model for us in real life or real historical figures that are a model for us in real life. He just says they're both godly women. Uh, Maybe he thought they were historical, maybe not. My point is that both stories are either true meaning they're both historical, Judith and Esther. And I think that's going to be hard to, to support. But they are, on the other hand, at least what we would say are inspired works of fiction that God did intend to have in the Bible. I think God intended Esther to be in the Bible. But I think God also intended Judith to be in the Bible. And that should be the way it is, just like it was left in the Septuagint. So the Septuagint should be our Bible. Uh, 
And that's my uh, final thought before we get into the chapter summaries. Well, a lot can be said about canon. Yeah, the, the, absolutely. It, it, you're exactly right. It is. It's a process. I mean, even just the the formation of the documents that make up our Bible that that's a 1500 year process. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that's uh, right. So um, uh, maybe we'll talk about that. That's right. In long form, at some time in the future. But that's right. If there is no other, man, a pretty solid half hour there on Introduction to Esther. That's right. Um, if there's nothing else, let's move on to the actual content of the book of Esther. And what we're going to do, we'll summarize each chapter as we go. We're going to do the first five chapters in this episode. We'll do the next five in the next uh, episode of the podcast. And then we'll have some questions as to kind of clean things up uh, as we go along at the end of each chapter summary. So... Alex, why don't you get, get, uh, kick things off with Chapter 1 Summary. All right, Chapter 1 Summary. So it was the third year of the Persian king's reign, and Ahasuerus was way too bored and had far too much wealth to know what to do with. So he threw the biggest party of the century for all the military and royalty, lasting half a year. As the party grew long, he let all of the royal subjects and good citizens of Susa, the capital, have their own little feast for about one week. Ahasuerus enjoyed showing off all of his riches and providing ample amounts of wine, but don't worry, if you don't want to drink, he was like, that's cool, dude, no pressure. Meanwhile, the king's wife, Queen Vashti, was having a small little shindig of her own with just the women folk, and on a drunken whim, the king demands that the queen come exhibit her beauty before his party while wearing the royal crown. Well, Vashti refuses the drunken king, and that sends him into an angry, drunken stupor. The king immediately calls his wise men in for counsel, which is logical because this is obviously an emergency. And the wise men tell the king and all the princes that this act of defiance will surely make every wife in the land, especially the royal wives, think that they can just start refusing any drunken whim of their husband, and that would be chaos. So Vashti must be sent away forever. So Ahasuerus, uh, he agrees. And thinking it necessary for every person in the kingdom to be aware of his personal problems, he sends letters to everyone in the kingdom in every language, declaring that the man should be the head of the house which is an obvious fact that everyone in the ancient world already agreed with anyway, it has nothing to do with Queen Vashti's refusal to model before strangers. And that's chapter one. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, verse one, you mentioned it there, the third year of uh, the reign of King Xerxes. Um, yeah, what, what's the time frame for the story of Esther? When does it take place? So if we go with Josephus and the Septuagint, which I do. It places this during the reign of Artaxerxes I, Longimanus. And this makes sense because if it were the Ahasuerus Xerxes um, that we have in the Masoretic text, then there would be a war going on with the Greeks. And that would hardly be the time to throw a six-month party. So uh, this kind of goes in our um, introduction material. Any thoughts, Nick? Yeah, so the way around the historical difficulty there would be that this is early in his reign. He doesn't go to war with the Greeks until... So he, he kind of flames out with Vashti, right? And he gets upset and so I'm going to war. And he goes to war, 
And that's why you get that gap in the book of Esther the from, the, what, the third year to the seventh year. He's off at war. And then he comes back. He's been defeated and licking his wounds, and now he's going to um, indulge the flesh. Uh, but so my take is uh, the uh, Xerxes, who reigns from 486 to 465 B.C. Well, verse 12 then, Alex, the king in a drunken stupor, hey, Come on in, Vashti, uh, and bring that crown. And she refuses. Why did Queen Vashti refuse to come when the king called? Yeah, so in, in the Masoretic text, it doesn't say why. It just says she refuses. But if you read Josephus, his account adds the fact that Vashti refuses to come because it was forbidden in the Persian law for wives to be seen by strangers. Now, of course the king and queen were seen by strangers, and so it's assumed that that particular law is referring to being seen naked. In other words, uh, come on in, Vashti. Come in uh, wearing your royal crown and nothing else. Any thoughts, Nick? Yeah, like you said, the uh, the, the Hebrew text does not um, uh, does not indicate why she refused. If you follow the Targum of Esther. Uh, well, Xerxes wanted her, uh, well, just as you indicated, he wanted her to appear naked, wearing only the crown. And out of modesty, she refused. So um, it's kind of interesting the way the men are portrayed. Even Mordecai, there's some kind of suspect things that we'll talk about as we go along in the book. But uh, right. um, how the men are portrayed, but then how the women are portrayed um, yeah. in the book. <clears throat> yep, the women are the honorable ones in the story. Well, what about these wise men, Nick? Uh, verse 13, uh, King Ahasuerus, he's angry. Vashti won't come in. So he calls the council of wise men together. Who are they? How yeah, do they understand the times? Yeah, These sages, yeah. They, these are guys who were familiar with the laws. Uh, the New Revised Standard has uh, sages who knew the laws, uh, although they do have the marginal reading, understood the times. So they, know, they understood the laws, the customs, uh, probably also familiar with history, right? These are the wise guys um, of the Persian Empire. Uh, what do you think about these wise men? You know, wise men can also refer to astrologers who read the night sky in order to forecast the future or to keep an eye on prophetic events. Apparently, the potential revolt of women in the land was forecast in the sky, unless the king were to intervene. And uh, this would... Go, this would go along well with what we see Haman doing. Haman's going to be casting lots, and so this idea of, of Gentiles and pagans uh, reading the stars, casting lots, di- divination, that sort of thing. So that could be what's going on with these wise men who come in to counsel, uh, counsel the Persian king. Well, Nick, why don't you give us a summary of chapter 2? Okay, so let's, let's take a step back here. How, how do we typically read Esther... The book of Esther, and specifically Esther chapter 2. We read it more like a fairy tale than what it actually is. So, you know, it goes something like, well, once upon a time. Uh, and, and in fact, I heard uh, uh, Amy Bost at Pepperdine a couple years ago talk about this. Once upon a time, a peasant girl wanted to marry a prince more than anything. And as fortune would have it, she was invited with all the girls in the kingdom by the prince to a ball. Across the room, the prince saw her for her beauty. They fell in love, and they lived happily ever after. Unfortunately, that is not how chapter 2 of Esther 
really is. It actually reads more like an ancient Near Eastern royal edition of The Bachelor than it does a Disney princess fairy tale. <clears throat> and that's not to say anything bad about The Bachelor. The king's temper tantrum is over, and he needs a, he needs a queen. So his young advisors advise that they host an ancient Near Eastern royal edition of The Bachelor. One man surrounded by many beautiful young virgins, all who are vying for his attention and affection. There will be a months-long beautification process with beauty treatments, no doubt other education about how to please the king. On TV, in The Bachelor uh, TV show, he takes the girls on a series of dates, and then when things start getting steamy, we cut to the next scene. For Xerxes, though, there's no date, only a night with the king for each girl until he found the one he liked the most. And so just as the Jews were carried away against their will in uh, verses 5 and 6, so the girls were gathered and they were taken against their will into the king's palace, and this included Esther, a beautiful young woman with a tragic history that included the death of both parents. Now, this again, it's not a fairy tale. This is an X-rated ancient Near Eastern sex slave beauty contest. I think that's about as strong as I can make it. And again, remember, this is Xerxes. He's unstable. We've already seen that in how he treated his first wife. So you can only imagine the advice that these women are given when they go in for their night with the king. Maybe kind of like what Reba's saying. Just be nice to the king, sweetheart, and he'll be nice to you. But there's something about Esther. They weren't taking dance lessons? Don't know what it was. (laughs) But she wins the favor of Haggai, the man who's in charge of the women. He fast-tracks her to the head of the harem. Meanwhile, Mordecai, Esther's cousin who has raised her, is monitoring all this. Uh, Every day he's coming down to check on uh, how Esther's doing, very concerned about Esther's well-being, as he's depicted here in chapter 2. Finally, after 10 months, or 12 months if you're following the Septuagint, or is it three years and 10 months, assuming uh, Xerxes started the process shortly after dismissing Vashti, maybe with an interrupted break there to go wage war on the Greeks, I don't know. Um, he comes back, he's fresh off. Anyway, it's finally time for... Uh, Esther's night with the king. By the, again, he's been having one-night stands for the last year or so, right? She takes nothing because apparently she needs nothing. Xerxes loves her more than all the other girls. She wins his favor. She wins this X-rated beauty contest. And the prize? She gets the queendom. And then there's another feast. Taxes are remitted. Meanwhile... It's time, some time has passed, and it's time for season two of One Night with the King. It's in pre-production. Mordecai, though, catches a whiff of political intrigue as Bigthan and Teresh, a couple of the king's eunuchs, are plotting to assassinate the king. Mordecai tells Esther, Esther tells Xerxes, Xerxes investigates, finds the plot is true, kills the two would-be assassins on the gallows. And already getting a little foreshadowing there. Hmm. 
All the while throughout all this, Esther never reveals that she is Jewish. End scene. Well, Nick, how could Mordecai be one of the exiles coming out of Jerusalem? Chapter 2, verse 6 says that he was, and yet here we are during the reign of Xerxes over 100 years later. I mean, how is that possible? Yeah, and if we conflate him with uh, Mordecai and Nehemiah 7, he not only was an exile, he came back with the exiles <laughs> with Nehemiah. Um, who had been carried away from Jerusalem among the captives? Right, That phrase could and perhaps should be applied to Mordecai's great-great-grandfather Kish. Kish had been carried away from Jerusalem along with the captives. Um, not Mordecai. Mordecai probably born into, uh, if not Babylon, the Persian, uh, under the Persian Empire. So uh, that's what I see there. What do you think? Yeah, I think that's right. Uh, if you if you want to maintain uh, historicity, then that's the only way you can read it. Otherwise, Mordecai would be way too old. He'd be well over 100 years old. He'd be long dead before the story of Esther, um, let alone the cousin of Esther, right, or uncle. So unless this is uh, intended, though, to broadcast to the audience that we are dealing with fiction and that that's okay. So intentional historical impossibilities are given to display how the literature should be read, just like we saw in Judith. So again, two ways you could read it. Well, the name Esther, that's not Esther's actual name. Her actual name is Hadassah. So why why is that? What's that mean? Yeah, 2 verse 7 there. Hadassah is her Hebrew name. Esther is her Persian name. And, and maybe you can speak a bit to what they mean. Yeah, Hadassah in Hebrew, it means myrtle, as in the tree, myrtle tree. It has a pleasing, fragrant smell. Esther, however, uh, that name has been subject to several scholarly suggestions. Some scholars say it could also mean myrtle. It would be a combination of, of two different Persian words. Um so it could just be the equivalent in another language. Uh, Esther also, though, uh, could mean star. Uh, it could also mean hidden, which would go along with the story, right? She is a Jew hidden within this place of power in a Gentile kingdom. Uh, some people think it, Esther means Ishtar, you know, named after one of the, the Gentiles' deities. All of which then, depending on the name you pick, the meaning... Uh, that gets incorporated into a specific commentary on the story as a whole and how that fits with the story. So that's Esther, that's Hadassah. So, all right, depending upon which you, what, what you're reading, if you're reading from most English um, translations, Mordecai adopted Esther as his own daughter, 2 verse 7 says. However, if you're reading from the Septuagint, it reads differently and that he's kind of raising her up to be his wife. So which is it, Alex? Was Mordecai raising Esther as a daughter or as a wife? Yeah, there's actually three different accounts, right? So mm. if you read Josephus, Josephus, he records the whole story of Esther, right? And when he records it, he says that Mordecai is Esther's uncle, just like we see in our Bible. But Josephus says he's bringing her up to be his wife, just like we see in the Septuagint. So Josephus says Mordecai is the uncle of Esther, bringing her up to be his wife. Yikes. I think that's, that's creepy. Yeah, I think that's super creepy. In the Masoretic text, in other words, our Bibles, Mordecai is Esther's uh, cousin, 
right? And he's bringing her up as if she were his daughter. Is that the way it is, or is he your uncle? Okay. Man, I'm getting no, confused. Uh, so my so the new revised standard has Esther as his cousin. Right. Okay. Yeah. And yeah, as a, raising her as a, adopted her as his daughter. So Josephus, Mordecai is Esther's uncle, bringing her up as his wife. In our Bibles, Masoretic text, Mordecai is the cousin, bringing her up though as if she were his daughter. So the Septuagint splits it down the middle. Septuagint says Mordecai is Esther's cousin, just like we read in in our Bible, but he is bringing her up to be his wife. And it seems like if we go with the common denominator from all three sources, then I think that's probably the accurate, most accurate version. Mordecai is Esther's cousin, uh, but he is bringing her up, raising her up to be his wife, which is still kind of weird, but <laughs> less yeah. less weird yeah. than the uncle being bringing up his net niece as a wife. <laughs> so <laughs> weird, weird stuff. But I guess that's the least offensive one. So, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. All right. Well, uh, verse eight. There are right, all these women being chosen for the harem of the king. Do you think Esther had a choice about that about being chosen for the harem? Yeah, not according to my read. And and it's a it's a uh, the, the the passive is used here on uh, this verb, and that seems to connote that. She, along with all the other girls, are taken against their will. Yeah. I'm guessing that she was probably taken against Mordecai's will as well. Mm. In this kind of scenario, that would bring up a good question for the dispersed Jews. You know, at what point do you fight back over your Gentile rulers? Uh, How do you conduct yourself as a faithful Jew without putting your family in danger? So these are important questions, real questions that they would have had to consider while in dispersion. So um, Haggai would would give the young ladies advice um, before they went in, and we're told in verse 15 that he does that with Esther. What, what kind of advice did Haggai give to Esther? Yeah, Haggai was obviously familiar with the tastes of the king, uh, what kind of women he liked, how they should look, how they should smell, behave, etc. And let's be real, Haggai is what looks like to me a royal pimp, head of the king's brothel. And what's mm-hmm. a brothel exist for? It exists for the sexual pleasure of the king. So what kind of advice would Haggai or Hegai give Esther that would make her stand out above the other women in the eyes of the king? Well, it probably wasn't just if you play cards, make sure you let them win. <laughs> so uh, it's probably more than just uh, dancing lessons, right? So mm. I think people get the hint, hint, wink, wink, and that's the kind of story this is. That's what happens. Now, Nick, in the story towards the end of the chapter, yeah. we have an interesting note from the Septuagint where the two guards are angry at the king. So why are they angry? Well, following the Hebrew, there's no reason given. But if you follow the Septuagint, and of course that adds all kinds of bonus material, uh, their anger anger is rooted in Mordecai's promotions. Yeah, that's exactly right. And that raises in the story more tension between Gentiles, the Gentile rulers, and Mordecai, the Jew, right? The faithful Jew. So, All right, yeah, that's chapter 2. A lot going on there, and a lot more is about to happen as we come to chapter 3, Alex. That's right. So chapter 3 summary. Here finally enters the antagonist, 
Though Mordecai's rescue of the king is forgotten as quickly as it was written down, now we see Haman, the Agagite, being promoted to a top position in the kingdom. And the king commands that all pay homage to Haman and bow down to him. And all did just that, except Mordecai. Several servants, they try to persuade Mordecai to bow, but to no avail. The servants tell Haman, and Haman becomes livid. In the whole process, it's sort of alluded that the reason Mordecai won't bow is because he was a Jew. And that perhaps illustrates what the author would have considered idolatry, right? You don't bow down to another man. The solution then? Ah, Haman will just kill all of the Jews, because that's logical. (laughs) So Haman convinces the king of a plan to kill the Jews and to plunder their wealth, right? Uh, So there's, there's some incentive there. Which, uh, that doesn't take too much convincing, kind of like what we saw in chapter 1. And so letters are sent out to all of the kingdom calling for the complete annihilation of every Jew, man, woman, child, which would take place in about a year. So, you have a heads up. Of course, the news had reached the capital first where Haman and the king lived, the capital of Susa. And the two men sat down for a drink while the city was thrown into confusion. Lots of Jews in that city, perhaps? Probably so. And that's chapter 3 summary. Hmm. All right, so 3 verse 1, we're introduced to the bad guy, Haman, son of Hamadatha, the Agagite. Alex, what in the world is an Agagite? All right, well, this tidbit of information is... I think, given by the the author for the audience's sake. It's the most probable explanation for why Haman hated Mordecai so intensely. It's basically saying all that enmity between the people of Israel and the Amalekites, as you'll speak to in a second, it gets sort of personified and placed into into the roles of these two men. Mordecai versus Haman. Israelites versus Amalekites, the faithful Jew versus the Agagite. What do you? What else do you see, Nick? Yeah, so you dig back into First uh, First uh, Samuel chapter fifteen. This is where King Saul. Things are falling apart for Saul, right? As king, he is not physically. He has all the characteristics you would expect from a king. But he is just a failure when it comes to statesmanship and. King Saul is commanded by God to devote to destruction the Amalekites. Agag was king of the Amalekites. Saul failed to do what God had commanded. Uh, he, He kept Agag alive, and his men kept some spoils of war. Samuel rebukes Saul for his failure, and then... He has to get his hands dirty, Samuel does. He hacks Agag to pieces. Just brutal, violent death that is visited upon Agag. But apparently, a remnant of Amalekites survived Saul's pseudo-obedience because David has to fight against and rescue two of his wives from the Amalekites later on in 1 Samuel chapter 27 and also chapter 30. Years later, under Hezekiah, there's still a remnant of Amalekites, and they have to be defeated, 1 Chronicles 4, verse 43. It appears 
that Haman is a descendant of Agag, king of the Amalekites. So, once more, we have a showdown between a son of Kish, which is Mordecai, a Benjaminite, so Mordecai, you got the parallel with Saul there, and Agag's descendant, Haman. Where Saul failed, Mordecai, through Esther, will succeed. Spoiler alert, by the way. Uh, so that's a bit of what I found. Alex, any other thoughts? Yeah, just, you know, one final thought. What better bad guy to pick for the battle of the entire Jewish race than to go up against an Agagite? I mean, he might as well have been a giant as well. <laughs> well, Nick, um, chapter 3, verse 7, Haman, he's casting lots. Um, why is he doing that? Why are lots being cast before Haman? It seems like verse 6 may uh, provide, shed a little light on this. It seems like he's trying to determine the date for executing his plot against the Jewish people. Uh, That's my take on it. What do you think? Yeah, and this brings in that idea that he is is doing the will of his gods, right? Not the God of Yahweh, but his gods. And so now it's not just a battle between Israel and this Agagite or Israel and Gentile, but now Yahweh versus the other gods, but it's in the background. And so this probably, uh, again, relates to the festival of Purim, Puru meaning lot or fate in uh, Babylonian. And so Haman cast lots to determine the will of the gods for the destruction of the Jews, and yet Yahweh will overturn Haman's lot and perform, once again, a divine reversal. So Nick, bring us into chapter 4, summarize that for us. So Haman's final solution for the Jewish people has been broadcast. It throws the whole city of Susa into confusion. Mordecai, who is a resident of Susa, hears about it. He laments greatly, tears his clothes, sackcloth and ashes, loud, bitter crying. Likewise, the whole Jewish population unites in great lamentation with fasting, weeping, sackcloth and ashes. Esther, who's in the palace hears about cousin Mordecai's abnormal behavior. She's deeply distressed about it. She sends him new clothes for him to wear, but to no avail. She begins a back-and-forth correspondence with cousin Mordecai via one of the king's eunuchs, Hathak. Esther apparently doesn't have the full story, so Hathak is to get information from Mordecai, and Mordecai lays it all out there. The plot the payment, even the paper which contains the edict. Mordecai says, tell Esther to talk to the king for her people. So Hathak reports to Esther, who then replies that it's punishable on death if she just shows up without being summoned. Oh, and since season two of One Night with the King started, she's not been to see Xerxes in a month. Hathak reports to Mordecai and it is here that we have the verses that Esther is known for, the book of Esther is known for. Mordecai sends Hathak back to Esther with a simple message. Just because your queen does not free you from the death sentence, God will bring deliverance from somewhere, even if you remain silent. But maybe, just maybe, you're in the position of power you are in for such a time as this. Esther hears this, and she seems to resign herself to her fate. She calls for Mordecai to call a three-day fast, and after three days, she will risk her life and go before the king, saying, if I perish, I perish. Let's talk a bit about 
the content in this chapter, Alex. Verse 8, especially in the Septuagint, <clears throat> uh, does, does Mordecai manipulate Esther? You know, if you're reading the Septuagint, the answer is clearly yes. The Septuagint adds that Mordecai says, Hey, uh, remember when your parents died and I kept you alive? Yeah, you owe me one. <laughs> I mean, who says that? So, you know, it's it's not like also he didn't want to marry her. So, it, you know, it reminds me kind of of the story of Lot and how he offers up, this is Abraham's nephew Lot, when he offers up his daughters to the mob of men who want to rape the two angels that are visiting Lot. You know, when under the pressure of a life and death situation, it seems like Mordecai, like Lot, just offers up his own daughter as a sacrifice hmm. or his own family member or cousin or whatever she is. So this is just another example, I think, of righteous men crumbling under pressure. Clay feet, yeah. Well, Nick, has the king's regard for Esther truly begun to wane? She hasn't seen him in a month, verse 11. Yeah, that, that's possible. Uh, my read... Uh, kind of as I was retelling it there, via 2 verse 19, is that season 2 of One Night with the King is in full swing, right? And so Xerxes has been busy getting busy, right? Um, it's sick, but welcome <laughs> to Persia under Xerxes, right? Yeah. Um, another possibility is that Haman may have had some inkling into Mordecai's relationship with Esther. The, the full extent may not have been known. Uh, remember that in 2, verse 11, Mordecai was every day inquiring how Esther was doing while she was prepping for season one of One Night with the King. And so maybe uh, maybe Haman had taken notice or had been told about that, and so he, he maybe knows there's some kind of relationship there. I, I, don't, I don't know, but um, uh, that, that's, that's a possibility here as well. What do you think? It seems that whatever the case, right, Esther doesn't take the month-long absence to be a good sign, right? This is, this is bad timing. Her position, already precarious, does not instill confidence that she'll be able to just casually walk into the court and talk to the king out of the blue. Thus, the request for uh, prayer and fasting for three days by all the people. So, Nick, if Mordecai, though, in his little speech at the end, if he knows that somehow the Jews will be delivered, then why did he react with uh, wailing, weeping, you know? Uh, how does he know also if Esther would perish or not if uh, she doesn't act or do anything? You know, no one even knows that she's a Jew yet. How would he know what would happen to her? Yeah, and that's, that's a good question. Um, one possibility is is that his show of grief kind of had a dual purpose of, of lament to God, but also it's like an attempt to get Esther's attention. Hmm. I guess it's possible. Uh, Mordecai's lamentation over Haman's plot concerning the Jews probably stemmed largely from the fact that I think he knows he's the reason for Haman's fury. And this goes back to chapter 3 when he refused to bow the knee. His people, people of Mordecai, as it's described in, in 3 verse 6, they were in danger because he refused to bow the knee to Haman. And even if... God brought deliverance via another way, in other words, besides Esther, it would probably mean death for some of his people. And so, uh, and this is why I brought in also the, the connection there uh, that Haman may have, have known something 
uh, was up between Mordecai and Esther. Esther's in danger, presumably because, as mentioned, uh, Haman he has some kind of idea about their relation. Again, doesn't he may not know the whole extent, but uh, it's possible that he knew something. It's speculative, right? Mordecai, Mordecai knows that Haman knows something, and so he's kind of playing that for Esther here. I don't, text doesn't outright say that. It's just uh, kind of speculative. But uh, a couple of explanations there as to kind of why Haman's reaction, or Mordecai's reaction, even though he knows hey, deliverance is going to come anyway. Uh, what do you think? Well, I suppose Mordecai could suspect that Haman suspects Esther possible. But at the same time, however, from what we do know with what the text says, Mordecai seems highly manipulative in the way he talks to Esther. Hmm. Highly manipulative. I mean, one second he's, I'm in shambles because of this plot to kill the Jews, but I'm not too worried. God will deliver us. But it must be you who saves us, Esther. That's why you became queen. But if you don't, I'll be fine, although you'll probably die. What (laughs) is going, I mean... How is this right in any way? It's not right. It's righteous men crumbling under pressure, which, again, makes really Vashti and Esther the only redeemable characters in in the whole story. Mm. Yeah, it really does kind of shine that light on the the contrast between how the men are acting and how the women are acting. Yeah. So let's move forward here, Alex. Okay. Uh, Last chapter for today, chapter 5. Sum it up. Chapter 5 summary. So after three days of fasting... Esther goes before the king's court, and she's nervous and uh, about to faint, and she receives the royal scepter and pardon for entering unsummoned. No big deal. You know, <laughs> that in the Masoretic text in our Bible, that is like the most anticlimactic scene in the whole story, right? Just like she waited three days, she went in, and the king was like, here you go, royal scepter, no problem. That's it. You know, if you've read the Septuagint, Uh, as we'll see in the Greek Esther episode, this scene, the drama intensifies. The the story is better told in the Septuagint and by Josephus. Well, anyway, the scepter goes out. The king says, hey, whatever you want, up to half of my kingdom is yours. What would you like, Esther? Esther says, oh, no, no, no. Uh, I don't want anything. Did you and Haman uh, want some dinner? I just cooked. And so (laughs) after eating, the king says, okay, really, Esther, what did you want? And Esther says, all right, I'll tell you. Uh, But first she invites him and Haman for another banquet to be held the next day. And then she'll ask for whatever she's going to ask for. So after leaving, Haman's in a good mood. He just had a special dinner with just the queen and the king. But then he sees Mordecai sitting there, just sitting. How dare he? not standing for respect when he walks by, not trembling out of fear and reverence before his presence or anything. Sitting, Mordecai, how dare he? After an evening then with his friends and wife, Haman recounts to them all of his sons, all of his riches, all of his accomplishments, all of his job promotions, and now the favor he has with Queen Esther. And all these great things, it means nothing because Mordecai's just sitting He's just doing nothing, just sitting. I hate Mordecai. None of this means anything until Mordecai's dead. So Haman's wife says, Dear, tomorrow morning, just get an early start on the day, have Mordecai hung on a 50-cubic gallow, and then go to Esther's banquet, and you'll be in a much better mood. It'll be a good day. And so Haman says, Good plan, wife. And Haman has the gallows made right away. 
And that's the end of chapter five. <laughs> the plot so, thickens. Yeah, that's right. So as we leave with this uh, cliffhanger on the gallows, Nick, why were the gallows built so high? I mean, 50 cubits, that's no joke. Yeah. <clears throat> what, 75 feet tall? I mean, gallows, <clears throat> excuse me, gallows may not be kind of what we, we tend to think of, uh, the, the word that's used here. Uh, we tend to think of like a platform, you know, where someone's hanged. Rather, this could be understood as a, a massive stake or, or pole on which a person was impelled, which also, <clears throat> you know, here's Haman, and he's recounting and regaling his audience with all this stuff. He's got to build a 75-foot-tall pole, kind of like, kind of like Shrek, what Shrek's, or, or uh, yeah, what Shrek says to Donkey in Shrek, right? He's, Think he's compensating for something, right? <laughs> <laughs> um, <clears throat> excuse me. Shout out and that kind of go along with friends. the kind of the overall theme, uh, where you have these guys that are very, uh, very fleshly, right? Very fleshly focused. Um, there's other explanations. Some explain this as as an exaggeration. The gallows here are just really big. Uh, others say that the gallows were built on a hill, and that's why they were so high, and they were plainly visible from all directions. Still others suggest the gallows, or could be the stakes, they were literally 75 feet tall, taller than the trees. So you could see them coming from a long way off, and it would be this solemn reminder of Haman's power. Don't cross Haman, or he'll get you. That's right. (laughs) What do you think about the height of these gallows? Well, it does say the gallows were made, and so some form of human ingenuity was used here. I personally vote for the ridiculously high scaffolding where Mordecai's dead body is hung on for display. So, again... Uh, Long way down. Quite the display, perhaps quite the exaggeration, perhaps a tool for the type of literature it is. But that's where we're going to stop for today because uh, we want to get to our featured creature segment. Next week we'll finish up the uh, text of Esther. So That's Nick, right. Yeah, Cliffhanger right creature? All the pieces are in place. Bum, bum, bum. That's right. Tune in next week. <clears throat> well, Nick, next time. Featured creature. Featured creature. What do we? What's our featured creature today? So we're going to talk about seraph or seraphim, plural. Uh. So, seraph, they only make one appearance in the Bible. Uh, the seraphim show up in Isaiah 6, 1 through 6. This, of course, is a throne room scene. Isaiah gets called up into the heavenly throne room of Yahweh. The train of Yahweh's robe goes all the way around his heavenly temple, fills the whole thing up. And you have these these seraphim, these beings that are flying around with two wings. Two wings cover their face, two wings cover their feet. So they have some kind of uh, uh, human appearance, I guess, uh, to them, uh, it would seem. Um, And these six-winged heavenly creatures, angelic beings, are worshipers of the majesty of God because all they do is they fly around yelling, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God of hosts. Uh, Literally, the word uh, seraph means burning one, seraphim, burning one. So another added dimension here is apparently they're on fire as they're flying around. (laughs) 
um, <laughs> like like these these human torches uh, from the you know the Marvel comics, right? The human torches flying around. Only these are angelic beings that are on fire, flying around. And I don't know if they're leaving like a you know the flaming four in the sky like uh, Johnny Storm would do. But anyway, that's in Ezekiel, right? When the throne chariot comes down, there are uh, flaming torches that dart back and forth around the throne. <laughs> <laughs> nice connection. Yeah. Um, okay. Where do the where else do these creatures show up? They show up, uh, and I guess this would be kind of a pop culture reference. These creatures are also named in the work of fiction, which is the Book of Mormon, and uh, their mention in the Book of Mormon is actually proof that Joseph Smith was not a prophet. So you need to know a little bit about the translation exercises of Joseph Smith for this to kind of come into view here. Joseph Smith would sit behind a curtain. He would have the golden tablets that he had found. On them were writing uh, that was written in Neo-Egyptian. And he would also have a black bag in which he had the Urim and the Thummim down in that black bag. On the other side of the curtain was one of his people who would transcribe as he translated the Neo-Egyptian on the golden tablets using the Urim and the Thummim. Confused yet? Anyway, it wasn't just that he would tell them the word. He would actually spell things out. This is supposed to be the most perfect translation of God's word on the planet. As he would put his face into the bag, the Urim and the Thummim would glow. They would reveal the next letter in English that would translate the Neo-Egyptian on the golden tablet, and he would yell it over to the people on the other side of the curtain. S-E-R-A-P-H-I-M. S. Uh-oh. See, the thing about Joseph Smith was, uh, although he was kind of a trickster, he, he wasn't real bright. <laughs> and and this letter-for-letter letter translation should not have included the S on seraphims, right? <laughs> Seraphim. Seraphim is plural already, right? If you want to talk about more than one seraph, you talk about seraphim. Seraphims is a grammatical mistake. It's an error that was in the very first edition of the Book of Mormon, 1830. And in fact, I have it here in 2 Nephi 16 and verse 2. Above it stood the seraphims. Each one had six wings. With twain he covered his face. With twain he covered his feet. With twain he did fly. Now, where in the world did Joseph Smith get that? He actually plagiarized it from the King James, which has retained that grammatical error (laughs) even to today. From Isaiah 6, verse 2, above it stood the seraphims, each one had six wings, with twain he covered his feet, with twain he covered his, uh, with twain he covered his face, with twain he covered his feet, with twain he covered, uh, with twain he did fly. Um, And by the way, it's okay for the King James Version to have that grammatical error because it doesn't claim to be an inspired translation like the Book of Mormon does. Right. And so... Oops, um, not only did Unless you plagiarize the King, King James, James you actually kept the, what's that? Unless you're one of the King James only people. Some some of them do say it's perfect. That's true. Anyway, grammatical error <laughs> that found its way into the Book of Mormon that uh, is, again, further proof. And by the way, I have a whole list here of all the various grammatical spelling errors in the original 
inspired translation of the Book of Mormon. It simply wasn't. Joseph Smith was a false prophet. The Book of Mormon is a work of fiction that has been foisted upon people. And it's awful. Um, but uh, seraphim. Yeah. There you go. A little bit about that. What did you find, Alex, about well, I, seraphs? I guess we did two featured creatures, Joseph Smith and seraphs. <laughs> so the seraphs, I'll cover that part. The, the word <laughs> seraph, uh, which uh, you've described, uh, is also found in the Hebrew to uh, that's translated as fiery serpents. That's in Numbers 21, verse 6, verse 8, and Deuteronomy 8 verse 15 so fiery serpents it's that same word sarap and the word can also mean to burn or to incinerate and actually i was kind of wondering if the flaming sword that was stationed along with the cherubim to guard the way to the tree of life in genesis three twenty four, when adam and eve are kicked out and god doesn't want them getting back to the tree of life um i think that flaming sword is probably a veiled reference to the seraphim because seraphim and cherubim, they're often guardians together. So other scholars think that a seraph is actually derived from an Egyptian word that uh, sounds the same, but it means griffin, right? So here we are talking about griffins, Gryffindor, Harry Potter, something like that. So most scholars today, though, they view the seraph as a winged serpent. So in Isaiah, it's got six wings, but on much iconography found in the ancient Near East. Uh, no six-winged snakes, but we have two-winged snakes. We have four-winged snakes. And uh, these winged serpents, they have some human-like features, right? They're singing uh, the holy, holy, holy before God's throne. It's a featured creature, right? This creature boom, boom. is a <laughs> this creature is a kind of throne guardian that's where it hangs out around yahweh's throne and just like the serpent that's on the headdress of egyptian gods and egyptian kings it spits uh fiery venom like a cobra at anyone who would misstep before the sovereign presence of uh the one wearing the the seraph so while powerful and also performing some function the seraph the seraphim themselves, uh, they have to cover their own bodies with their wings from the glory and presence of Yahweh. Hey, wait a second. Serpents with wings? These are dragons. Yes. <laughs> I knew dragons were in the Bible. Besides Revelation. So the seraphim, uh, they're mentioned along with cherubim, but also in the uh, pseudepigraphic work First Enoch, Chapter 71, verse 7, seraphim are mentioned with cherubim and ophanim, so another throne guardian figure, and they're called sleepless ones, so they never sleep, who guard the throne of Yahweh, so they protect that sacred space. And I will, of course, give the hat tip to uh, the Dictionary of Deities and Demons in the Bible for much of this information. So, summary, if you look up in the sky, you see uh, dragons coming forth, uh, with like darting torches of fire, bright lights, then, hey, bring out the welcome committee. Yahweh's throne is coming to earth. Nice. That's our featured creature. <clears throat> man, well, that's, uh, that's all I got. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm worn out, man. I'm tired. I'm sure people are tired of listening by now. <laughs> <laughs> An hour and 23 minutes. Well, 
this was a lot longer because we had all that pre-book information to cover, especially canonicity. But hopefully our audience has gotten a lot of good information and will join us again next week as we cover Esther chapter 6 through 10. Nick, why don't you tell our audience about the podcast? In the meantime, if you can't get enough of swordplay, <laughs> go into the Google Play Music Store, go into uh, the Apple Podcast uh, place and, and search swordplay. Uh, subscribe to the podcast, download episodes to your particular device, take it with you on the go. Uh, share this on social media, leave a review. That'll help boost our ratings in those places respectively. And if folks have a question, Alex, where can they send it? They can send it to swordplaypodcast at gmail.com, swordplaypodcast at gmail.com. Again, thanks for hanging in there with us for this uh, deep dive into the Book of Esther. And again, please join us next time on another episode of Swordplay. Swordplay.